1: about the wedding pretty soon that one conversation escalates into multiple conversations as people talk just to the person next to them or their friend that is sitting across the table people are getting up to get food they are talking at the buffet line waiters are talking to each other to discuss what waters need to be refilled the bride and groom the newlyweds are at the head table talking to one another And pretty soon in that one room, there are hundreds of conversations going all at the same time. It's loud. It is chaotic. There is this constant buzz of noise and conversations. Now imagine those conversations and all of that noise occurring just 30 minutes prior in the middle of the wedding ceremony people talking, people shouting over one another, trying to outdo each other, not listening to the music, not listening to the pastor, not listening to the bride or the groom speak their vows. And as those go through the speakers, they speak even louder in the audience to speak over what is being projected through the sound system. That would be totally unacceptable. Now imagine that same scene happening right now. As I preach and others listen, instead of simple conversations, there are many, each trying to outdo one another. And as the sound table increases my volume, you get even louder so that the neighbor next to you that you're speaking to can hear. But it's not just mundane conversations you're trying to encourage, You're trying to share what you've learned from the Bible this week. It is seemingly good and spiritual stuff, but it's happening at the same time as I am preaching and everyone else is trying to edify as well. You understand in the midst of that, there is no edification. It is chaos. It is madness. It is loud. It is distracting. And that is why Paul calls for order in the church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verses 26-28. And we start a new series. Within chapter 14, he has explained the importance of using our spiritual gifts properly. He is speaking within the context of spiritual gifts that are no longer existent, but also within the context in which the early Corinthian church, the original Corinthian church, is using their spiritual gifts for selfish reasons. They are trying to brag. They are trying to show off. And what we just talked about in that wedding reception is this what is happening at church it is chaotic and so paul begins in verse 26 of first corinthians 14 and says what is the outcome then brethren when you assemble each one has a psalm has a teaching has a revelation has a tongue has an interpretation let all things be done for edification If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. We focus again on tongues next week, or in two weeks rather. He will continue talking about order in the church, but speak about prophecy, the two main spiritual gifts that he has been talking about throughout this chapter, mainly to emphasize the focus on just yourself or the focus on the whole church. But this morning he focuses on tongues, and so I want to give you quite simply two prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of tongues. Two prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of tongues. Again, the gift of tongues no longer existent in the church, but they're still valuable lessons for us today. The first prescription is the corporate goal the corporate goal. Let me read for you again verse 26. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians 14. He asks, What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. This opening question links us back to the close of our last section, where in verses 24 and 25, Paul speaks of the ultimate repentance and worship of unbelievers who would witness an entire church prophesying because they are speaking forth the Word of God in contrast to an entire church that is speaking in tongues and the unbeliever or the visitor would walk out and say they are mad. And the result is the unbeliever either leaves or the unbeliever in hearing the Word of God through prophecy stays, repents, worships God. And so here in verse 26, after that contrast, hypothetical, both of them, Paul asks, what then? Or what's the implication of all of this? What do we do now, brethren, Christians? The NAS is what is the outcome then can be a little confusing. The words the outcome, if you have the NAS, are in italics because they're not in the original text. They're in interpretive edition placed there by the editor's. But the point is that Paul is transitioning to explain what the church should do with tongues if what we saw in the previous section is true. That speaking in tongues by a large group would lead to people thinking that the Christian church is mad and no different than the pagan religions that were so prominent in Corinth of that day. He begins with a general principle that involves all spiritual gifts that would be used within a worship service. A principle that also includes all believers who participate in such a service. He lists a few of them. This list is in no way an exhaustive list of all the ministries of the church, nor is he giving a sequential order of service. It is simply an ad hoc list of things that might happen in a gathering of the early church, and we've seen several such lists in this study. We know that this is about a church service or gathering of believers. Some believe that this was describing what would happen in the common meal that would happen after the service. It's not clear, but either way, it's an assembly as indicated by the phrase, when you assemble. That verb indicates a continuous action. It means whenever or as often as you Christians get together. And what is happening is we're given some insight into how the church looked back then. And he says, each one, referring to the individuals who have a spiritual gift to exercise at this gathering. It doesn't mean that everyone has something to contribute, although all are welcome, so long as the guidelines that we will see later are followed. But let's get to the list. First, he says, a psalm. The word indicates some sort of praise to God. This could be reading or singing one of the Old Testament psalms. This could possibly even refer to a fresh composition rather than a known one from the book of Psalms. Either way, it is a praise of the Lord. Next, we have a teaching. This would not be instantaneous. This would not be a a revelation that someone receives spontaneously. This would be teaching on theology or doctrine, Scripture, based on study and reflection, explaining and applying the truths Of the Word of God. Thirdly, he mentions a revelation. This is more miraculous. We've seen this before. It is a direct and divine, that is from God, disclosure to someone that was then shared with the group in their common language. So it was directly from God and it was meant to be shared. Next, Paul mentions the topic at hand, a tongue. Something miracul- miraculously spoken in a foreign language, a known language, a language that is spoken somewhere in the world. It is not gibberish. It is a true language, but not the language of the common people, not the language spoken at that church. And finally, an interpretation also, as we have seen, a miraculous gift This would be the necessary interpretation of that foreign language. And so if someone spoke in tongues, he would speak clearly and fluently in a tongue, a language that he had not previously learned. The interpreter would interpret that language, also a language he does not know aside from the miraculous gift. All of these would be legitimate parts of a worship service. And from the context, what we have gathered is that the problem with the Corinthian church is that they were doing these things, but all of them at the same time, interrupting, talking over each other. It was chaotic. There was no order. There was no understanding. And thus, what Paul says, there was no edification. And although not as distinct, we actually see a similarity to the problem with speaking in tongues without an interpreter. See, here we have several aspects of corporate worship that are clear and understandable. Even tongues, it's implied, though, with an interpreter. But with everyone speaking at the same time, it might as well be a foreign language since you can't focus on all of it, you can't hear it, you're not encouraged, you're not edified. Now, one could argue in a situation like this because we have seen that what they are practicing are good things a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, a tongue with interpretation. You could argue that if you were sitting in that church, it would still be beneficial if you were standing in all that noise, but saying, I'm just going to focus on this one person. I've been in crowds before. I can just focus on this guy next to me who is giving a teaching or singing a song. And that would be true. You could be edified by that to hear this one person's spiritual gift or revelation from God. But we are talking about the assembly of the church and that is neither the time nor the place for what is happening here. At a party? Sure. At a big gathering, at a a big group, sitting at the Embarcadero, waiting for midnight on New Year's Eve? Absolutely. But not in the church, not when we are gathered together for orderly edification. One person is to speak at a time. This is not a dinner date. This is not a friendly chat with another member of the church as you take a walk together. We are talking about the assembling together of the saints in a church service or something similar, one at a time. Why? For the same reason that a tongue needs interpretation. Edification. For the purpose of edification. And notice that everything we see here, again it's not an exhaustive list, involves speaking forth scripture or doctrine or some sort of praise of God. And we have said before that edification is building up another believer. Literally house building or constructing a house. The ultimate goal is the spiritual upbuilding or growth of the believer. And that should be our goal always. We know that. How much more when the saints gather together in church? In other words, we should always be focused on true biblical fellowship, in that we seek to glorify God and edify other believers, whether, whether we are with one or whether we are with a thousand. Think of it this way. You've been given a job at work. Your boss says, from now on, for the next two months, we've hired a bunch of interns and new employees. Your job is to walk around the office and help these new employees get situated, figure out what they're supposed to do. Train them. And so you walk around the office and you see an intern who is looking confused and hitting a key on the keyboard. And so you walk over and say, Okay, what program are you using? What are you tasked to do? Let me help you out. You alleviate his confusion. One on one, you have trained that individual. Then you leave and you Walk down the hallway and you see a new employee clearly lost in the building. You ask her where she's headed. You point her in the right direction. One-on-one training. Now, if that's doing your job, how much more? When you are standing in front of a meeting of 50 of those interns and new employees, all gathered together, gathered to train, to learn, and listening intently. Would you gather up five of your coworkers and have them all speak at the same time? No. Would you have five projectors pointing at one screen, all projecting five of your different PowerPoint presentations? Of course not. That wouldn't even be beneficial for the crowd if there were five screens with five different projections. What you do is you plan out the meeting, each speaking in turn. And if there's something you said and one of your coworkers realizes, oh, I want to add to that, they wait till you're done and they'll say, excuse me, Roger, can I add to that? Getting everyone's attention, letting you know to stop talking, to give them space. You wait for a suitable time. You signal that you have something to add, something to say. Within the church, although we don't have the same structure and spiritual gifts mentioned in this passage, we do this in the church today order i don't walk up to the pulpit and start preaching in the middle of a song i don't ask you to drink the cup of communion in the middle of dennis's prayer nor does he start praying when the choir is singing all benefit beneficial and encouraging components of church but none of them edifying if concurrent with any other component and there are times when I do have something to say that comes to me in the moment, as I did last week, and after we finished singing, I signaled the MC, I'm gonna go up and say something, and I walked back to the table to tell the, the sound girl to unmute me. I waited till the song was done. I signaled Dennis not to come up. I made sure I could be heard. Order. Edification. One after another. And one may look at this verse and say, how do I plan everything so that it is edifying? My answer to you is that you have that backwards. Focus on your heart. Make edification your primary goal with the understanding that we can all corporately contribute to that and order will follow because it's logical. You get it. If you have a goal, it becomes logical how to achieve that goal. If your goal is to display to your children that you and your spouse are on the same page, it becomes logical then that you don't fight in front of them or interrupt each other in front of them and contradict one another in front of them. It just makes sense. And in the same way, if our goal is edification, it becomes clear how that works out. And it becomes clear how that doesn't work out. And it's very logical that all of you standing up and shouting different things right now as I try to preach logically would not edify anyone in this church. I called this first point the corporate goal. And I don't just mean corporate goal as in the goal of corporate worship, worship when we are together as a church but also the goal of every aspect of the meeting. Every part of worship corporately comes together for edification. Whether you enjoy it or not, whether you think it's boring or not, it is edifying if you let it. <clears throat> Their individual benefit notwithstanding, there can be no achievement of this goal of edification if there's no order in the church. There must be a pursuit of the corporate goal of edification, which leads to order. Let me give you a second prescription for the proper use of the gift of tongues. We've seen the corporate goal. Secondly, the controlling guidelines. He gives us guidelines, or he gives the Corinthians guidelines, rather, specifically about tongues. Again, further in the passage, he will give guidelines about prophecy. Tongues are not the only spiritual gift that needed to be used in order. They all do. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So essentially, we have two sets of guidelines here. One set for how tongues are to be used when there is an interpreter, and a set for how tongues are to be restrained if there isn't an interpreter. Let's look at the first set of guidelines in verse 27. And keep in mind, this is still within the context of the church assembly. Supposing there are some with the gift of tongues present, he puts a cap, a limit, on how many individuals with the gift are to speak in tongues. That is not to say that God will somehow ordain that only two or three people in each gathering will have the gift of tongues. He is saying that regardless of how many there are with this spiritual gift, only two or three were to speak at the meeting. What's more, Paul goes on to say that they are to speak in turn. That is not on top of each other, but one after another, not interrupting Not at the same time. Waiting till one is done and the interpretation is made and then the next. And that's a final point. There must be someone there to interpret. Someone with the spiritual gift of interpretation. So what does this all mean? First of all, we learned that tongues were not to dominate the service. They could only be a part of the service if they were a small part of the service. And we know that this was largely so that the more edifying and broadly profitable spiritual gifts, particularly prophecy, could be heard. Second, each person speaking in turn keeps the order and the intelligibility of the service. As we saw in previous weeks, this would also distinguish them from the various forms of pagan ecstasy found in the many religions around them. None of this could happen if, as those in the modern charismatic movement claim, the Holy Spirit overtakes the individual so that they have no control. They are possessed. They are overpowered. The movement justifies the chaotic display of what they think is tongues by saying it is His overpowering and there's nothing the human speaker can do about it. And so you have multiple speakers, far more than two or three, speaking and often speaking at the same time. I bring this up and will continue to do so, not as a criticism per se, but as a warning of the false doctrine and unbiblical practice of the modern charismatic movement. Not only is what they are doing not biblical tongues, the way they are administering them is not the biblical way. Two strikes. They also violate the third and final guideline: there must be an interpreter. Without an interpreter, it would not serve any edifying purpose for the congregation, and it would also be a source of pride and selfishness, as we are seeing among the Corinthians. I would not. I could not speak for the movement as a whole, but there are those and in the individuals that I know of. That it has become a source of pride for them as well. Claiming a greater spirituality, even claiming a salvation that other believers do not have because they have not spoken in tongues. That is a pride so great that it goes beyond even the bounds of Scripture, saying that your experience is what qualifies someone to be justified and not faith in Jesus Christ, as the Scriptures claim. Now, it would be bad enough. Back then, if people speaking the common language all spoke at the same time, you can imagine how much worse it would be if they were all speaking different languages, foreign languages at the same time. Even worse, that there's no ability for anyone to understand what's being said without the interpreters. All of these rules point to the need for order, understanding, and consideration within the church. And ultimately, practically, everything in regard to the use of tongues hinges on the presence of an interpreter. Because everything hinges on whether or not people are edified. And they're not edified if they don't understand what the person is saying. So Paul goes on in verse 28 to give a second set of guidelines that fall under the category of no interpreter. If there is not one, the one with the gift of tongues, he says quite simply and clearly, is to remain silent. Again, a nod to the fact that he is in control of the gift and not overtaken by the Holy Spirit in an uncontrollable way. And notice that Paul does not prohibit the gift. It is still a gift. It is still a good thing from the Lord. And as we have seen previously, it edifies the one with the gift. And that's what he is saying should take place here. Quite simply, without an interpreter, the person is to speak to himself and God. That is, in his own heart and mind, to pray silently just as you do at home. And this falls into what we should all do even without the gift of tongues. To silently meditate on the truth and pray to God. That's simply what he's saying here. This is fitting for that person's own edification, but not fitting in the church because it won't edify other people. As a side note, just as is the case for the most part in our churches today, we know what people's spiritual gifts are especially if they are of a public nature that is up front where everyone sees them and hears them and that's why in the same way back then it would be known who had the gift of interpretation and that's how someone with the gift of tongues could scan the congregation which weren't huge at that time and say oh is Jebediah here i know he has a gift of interpretation is Phineas here, right? Okay, they're not here, no with the gift of interpretation, so I'm going to keep silent and just speak tongues in my own heart and worship the Lord and pray to the Lord silently. So those are the controlling guidelines. And it doesn't directly pertain to us in that he is talking about spiritual gifts. It does pertain to us in many ways because of the call for orderliness within the assembling of the saints. It does pertain to us as an understanding because I know a lot of times people have questions when they see the charismatic movement and they see these churches or they visit these churches and several people are speaking in what they claim to be tongues all at the same time. There is holy rolling now where people fall to the ground being slain to the spirit. There was holy barking, holy laughter, holy vomiting. These are all true. These are all things that the charismatic movement are extolling. I am not making fun of them by using these terms. These are ones that they are bragging about are happening in their churches. I want to give you another side note, and this will probably come up even more, and I would imagine some of you would have some questions about this in the Q&A. A lot of times we see... Uh, people speaking in tongues, or we hear people or churches speaking in tongues, and we say, well, that must be a charismatic church. It has gotten to the point that what defines a charismatic church are the the practice or the supposed practice of these gifts, and I believe on paper that is how they are defined. There are a lot of different levels of this, it really hit its height with the holy barking holy laughter and all of that through the vineyard movement that started in Toronto uh in the mid 80s where it really gained some steam and i believe it was 1986 when when uh, charismatics were accepted by the powers that be uh on paper uh as uh, as officially evangelical so they are classified as evangelical and that's when you had a shift towards people starting saying well I'm evangelical but I'm cessationist right because saying that I am evangelical I'm reformed but I don't believe that the sign gifts still exist today and so you just have these longer longer definitions of who you are as a as a Christian and as a church but all that to say that there are different levels of of the extreme of what is going on with the sign gifts. And it is the, the charismatic movement that we label it that is more extreme, that's doing a lot of these extreme things. There are people who would classify them as charismatic. There were churches who would say that, yes, we speak in tongues. Yes, we believe that we can still uh, receive revelation, but we have nothing to do with the charismatic movement. But I submit to you that all of it can be dangerous. We need to be careful as we see these things. And what I was getting at earlier kind of lost my train of thought. Though that may be the official definition of what classifies a charismatic church, when you really understand the churches in the charismatic movement, the main defining quality is not the sign gifts, It is that their experience becomes equal or more authoritative than the word of God. That's why it is so dangerous. That's why they could say, Well, I've spoken in tongues, our leaders have spoken in tongues, and thus those who have not spoken in tongues must not be truly saved because they're not blessed by the Lord. Because they're looking not at scripture but their own experience. Then their experience says that the Holy Spirit possesses us, overtakes us, and so we have no no choice but to all speak in tongues at the same time while the preacher is preaching or the worship team is leading in worship. And so, yes, they know the passage we just studied exists, but their experience is this is what the Holy Spirit did, and so this must be what God has for us today rather than What the scriptures say, which many of them, or some of them I should say, would claim is only for less mature believers because the more mature believers are spoken to by God directly so they no longer need this. And so you have people in their experience, in their interpretation of dreams, in their supposed revelation, actually doing what the Bible considers sin, but because their experience and revelation trumps scripture, they can get that unbiblical divorce or do whatever it is that the Bible actually prohibits. Because they are now beyond that because God spoke directly to them and said, I can do this. And you can see why. It's not just about a misinterpretation or different understanding of whether the sign gifts exist today or not. It goes far deeper than that, to a dangerous level, because if your leader, if your pastor is preaching based on experience and what's happened in this, their church, then salvation is no longer based on faith in the works and death and resurrection in, of Jesus Christ, but coming alongside and seeing if the Holy Spirit gives you this experience. And now you see, of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions within these churches, are having these experiences with their lips singing and speaking praises to God and have never been told the gospel and thus logically are not real believers. But it is pushed and continued and promoted because they keep having these experiences, and yet they have never truly turned to the Lord in the way the Scriptures tell them to. And so you see how dangerous this movement is. And so we approach this movement with discernment, We approach those in the movement not with judgmental bashing, but with compassion and evangelism and love. Back to our text. Two prescriptions for the proper use of the gift of tongues, the corporate goal, and the controlling guidelines. What does this all mean for us today? Well, first... We are reminded that God is a God of order and not a God of chaos. He made order from the empty void in creation. And in His creation, everything as we have discovered and learned and continue to do so in the fields of science and medicine, everything has order. Everything leads to another thing. It doesn't just hand, happen chaotically. Two different surgeons in two different parts of the world going to two different colleges and medical schools will perform the same surgery in the same way because there's order within the human body. They are the same. Outside of physical illnesses or, or, or physical handicaps, they're all the same. Same number of ventricles, same number of arteries, same number of chambers, same way that it pumps, some way, same way that it breathes. There is order There's order in the world. We don't plant an acorn and wonder if it's going to be an apple tree because there's order. In His creation, there's order. He spoke to His people through the prophets who spoke in the Old Testament in order, clearly. Clearly. He has so planned the history of man and the church in an orderly fashion with different successive errors. We know that there's an end time. We know the order of events in the end time. We know what starts it. We know what ends it if you can call that in an end, eternity. It's not all jumbled together. We are in the church age. We know that it ends at a certain point and ushers in the rapture, the end times, the millennial reign. We know this. He is a God of order and we praise Him for that. When you see pagan religions or or churches that are, are, are practicing chaos within their services, you go there and you feel that something is wrong. It is chaotic. It is frenetic. You don't know what is going on. You don't know what is being said. It does not represent what we know about a powerful and all-wise Creator who has created order all around us. A second thing we can take away from this is that this God of order, our God of order, demands order in His body, the church, and the assembling of His body. We all have spiritual gifts, but they are to be used in a way that promotes understanding and edification. In a small microcosm of this, we have an order of service. We have pre-planned songs, sermons, scripture reading. We have individuals trained and designated to do those things. As an attendee of this church or any church, maybe you get bored because the sermons are too detailed or the songs are too numerous. But church is for the growth of believers and the glory of God and that takes time. We don't want to rush through it. We want to do it properly and truly focus on God. We don't just pile everything on and get through it so that we can go hang out afterwards. It takes time to expound the scriptures. It takes time to get your heart right so you can take communion. It takes time to read the scriptures properly and to meditate on it and to read it in a, in a, in a, in a in a nuanced way so that people can follow along in their Bibles and if they don't open their Bibles, they can listen and understand what's being said. It takes time to teach new songs. It takes time to pick up the melody and to meditate on those songs. We need to have order here. And behind the scenes, there's so much order to get us to this point in where there is a call to worship, two songs, a scripture reading, a prayer, a hymn, and then a sermon, and then a song. It doesn't mean we have to use that order, but it does mean that we have order. And finally... We take away the fact that our service is to be for others and not just for ourselves. It is corporate worship. We are together. We are not to show off our spiritual gifts and exercise them in a disruptive manner just to bring glory to ourselves. Because when we want to show off, we can't wait for our turn or the proper timing. We just blurt it out like the Corinthians. It may be that your spiritual gift, that in the midst of a Sunday service, It is never the time and place for your spiritual gift. You may have a spiritual gift that has to be used in people's homes or online in your bank account. You see what I'm getting at? I want you to encourage one another. I want you to follow up on prayer requests. But you don't pull someone out when they're trying to worship and sing or listen to the sermon and say, Hey, about that thing. You let them be encouraged and edified by my spiritual gift. Then the deacon's spiritual gifts. And then the worship leader's spiritual gifts. And then use your spiritual gift during fellowship or small group or on the phone during the week. Don't just blurt it out because you want everyone to see how spiritual you are. are. Hear that, everyone? I asked how he was doing. All of you knew he was sick. I'm the only one who asked. I asked. Me, 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 me. How does that edify anyone? I remember going on a road trip with a bunch of college students. And we were going to somewhere uh, that was a popular destination. Let's put it that way. It was known for being a place that cool people visited. And some of them had been there before. And we were on the road... And everyone's like, oh, where do we exit? The driver's like, where do I exit? And, and everyone wanted to, to be the first to remember what the exit was to show that we, we all knew how to get to this popular place. And suddenly the highway sign came into to view and everyone blurted out, oh yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it, oh yeah, that's it, I knew that. Everyone wanted to be the first to show off that they knew how to get there. Ironically, we all saw the sign, and so it wasn't really showing off that you can read. You're a UCLA student, you can read fantastic. <laughs> and that's what how we feel sometimes. Right? We want to we use our spirituality to, to show off. And we, we we need to learn from the Corinthians not to do that. Especially if it's disruptive towards church service or even small group. There's a time and a place for, for, for prayer requests at the end of small group, not when you're in the middle of a, of a question discussing something and jumping in and veering off. There's order to everything. And if your goal truly is the edification of others, then you will humbly wait on God's timing and wait your turn. Use it when it will have maximum results on others. And that's the big thing it is more productive. If your goal is edification of others, it will be more productive if you use it when someone can actually listen and answer if that requires an answer. My sermons are more productive because they are done when you expect the sermon. If I just go in the back, turn off my mic and start shouting it from the back corner, while you all are singing, it's a lot less productive. In fact, even those who hear it will struggle with being edified. They'll probably struggle with not sinning towards me by telling me to shut my mouth. Maybe they'll get on 911 because they think something's happening to me. I'm having some sort of attack. It's not helpful. And again, when you're only focused on your own ego... Disorder will result. Focus on edification. Use your spiritual gifts, but use them in order because order brings maximum edification. And so, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, has an encouragement has a check to hand someone, has a small group to lead, has a prayer request to follow up on. But let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that we can take these principles and apply them to our own lives and our own church and our own spiritual gifts. Help us to be humble. Give us the wisdom and discernment to, to know when our, when to use our spiritual gifts in a way that is maximally beneficial for the edification of the most people. Pray that those of us who are not using our spiritual gifts, would we'll get excited about the possibility, the potential that we have for edification and and to use our spiritual gifts and to serve. We do pray that your gospel would go forth, especially to those who have a misunderstanding of it, not just a misunderstanding of spiritual gifts and their usage, but about the gospel and the scriptures and your revelation, your completed canon completely. May those who you bring into our lives uh, in this regard, that you would help us to be gracious and loving and evangelistic in this way. Grow us and guard us against the dangers of pride as related especially to disorder in the church and the use of spiritual gifts. Help us to learn from the Corinthians and learn from your word. In Jesus' name